chapter 50. Um, I've titled the message tonight, The End of an Era. And I don't know if it's the end of an era of, uh, of uh, you know, Joseph's life and the, the study through Genesis or end, end of an era for you because you've been here for, for the 21 months we've studied this book. There's 74 individual studies through this book. I, I looked at all that today. It was really interesting. And uh, you guys deserve an award. That's all I have to say. You, <laughs> you've been here every week, and what a blessing it's been. Um, the, the Lord has challenged us. The Lord's taught us much. And tonight's study, even though we end with a couple of uh, funeral services, a couple of burials, um, this is a really interesting uh, chapter as well. So we're going to be looking at chapter 50 tonight. The title is The End of an Era, and uh, let's ask God's blessing before we jump into the Word. Father, we are grateful for your Word, and we're thankful that we've uh, been able to study verse by verse this whole uh, book of beginnings. What a fantastic study it's been. You've taught us much, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that we would take uh, this information uh, to the next level of, of learning as we move into the book of Exodus in the coming weeks and months, and that you would help us again to uh, take these things that were recorded historically and accurately and written down by your servant Moses. And these... Uh, books that we're studying that are so foundational to our Christian walk so many thousands of years later. And so again, Lord, we are grateful and thankful for the word. We come to it tonight with reverence. We, we lift up your name and we anxiously await what you will have to say to us as a church and individually tonight through your word. And we bless you in Jesus. Amen. Now, You'll remember in our last study, and again, this is important, the last couple of chapters of Genesis are important because they help us to understand many different things. And the, the key last uh, week was, was that the seed or the blessing has gone from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then to Jacob's son. It wasn't Reuben, as you recall. It wasn't Simeon. It wasn't even Levi. Who was it? Judah. Judah. And so this, the, the blessing goes to Judah, and, and that chapter helps us to understand, really important for us to understand that, that the seed, or Jesus, or the Messiah, is going to come through the line of Judah. Very important. Again, I'll draw your attention to the verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, here on the screen, um, where God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. She, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking about the coming Messiah and how the Messiah is going to wipe out Satan. And that's what we celebrate every Easter, right? Up from the grave, he arose. And the power of the resurrection in the life of the believer to eradicate sin's death grip on you and me. In other words, yes, I physically will die, but I have eternal life in Christ. My soul, my spirit, the person who I am, the, the very essence of, of Lee or whoever you are, goes on to be with the Lord, the promise of eternal life. And all of that is a result of God's wonderful 
providential, as we'll see tonight, plan. This is all part of God's plan. Remarkable plan. As I said last week, who could write this? No writer could come up with this. This is God's history here. And so the, the confirmation last week was the seed. And, and, and the seed's now going to go through the son of Jacob. His name is Judah. Now tonight in this final chapter uh, of this amazing book, really, as I, th- I thought about this book a lot today and, the, and this week, it's just an amazing book, Genesis. And next week, by the way, next week, you don't want to miss that. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and just recap creation and the fall. I'm just going to go real quickly. I've got that video. If you remember that video that I showed you, about the creation and the, the, it's just amazing. We'll show, it's just a real short little four minute video. And we're just gonna go back and look at that really quick. That'll be the kind of the final before we jump into Exodus, which we're gonna look at tonight, by the way. We're gonna look at the first couple of verses of Exodus chapter one, because they really tie into to this. But we've been studying for the, the, the last, I don't know, couple of months, the life of Joseph. And Joseph's life is stellar in terms of the patriarchs. When you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you get to Joseph, and his life is stellar. He becomes this type of Christ in so many different ways, as we've articulated throughout this study. But Joseph has trusted God. Joseph has always believed in God, as God has directed him through some of the hardest conditions and life uh, issues and, and things. I mean, this guy has gone through it. And he remains faithful to God, trusting God. So he becomes the man that we look to really in the Bible. He is the quintessential man of faithfulness and forgiveness. That's why I uh, titled this study about Joseph, this little series within the, the book of Genesis, uh, Joseph, the man of faithfulness and forgiveness. Because that's what he, his confidence in God, his, his trust, in everything he believes is a result of God's work in his life. And he's so, so faithful And with the death of his father, again, we're going to see the faithfulness of of Joseph. Now, chapter 9 closed, and we read this last week, it closed, 49, pardon me, closed with this very moving scene. We were at home, and we were in Jacob's bedroom as he was kind of uh, lifted himself up on the staff. And and I don't think I made mention of this, but why did Jacob have a staff? Because he was old? No. It's because of that wrestling match. Remember, his name was changed. He wrestled with God. His leg was broken, his hip taken out of joint. For the rest of his life, he was on that staff. And that was just a reminder in chapter 49 when he leaned up on his staff to give his sons the last prophecies of, of the end of their lives, kind of indicating each one of them that had failed miserably and, and they were going to, he basically wrapped up their life. And then he prophesied about their future, the future tribes these children of Israel, these 12 tribes that become key as we move into the rest of the Pentateuch, the five books that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible. These books that are Jewish to the core, they're, they're read by the Jews even today, by Christians today. Our faith is Judeo-Christian. That's our faith. It's a combination of, of the Jewish history and, and the richness of, of the Hebrew people, that God pulled out, drew out of this nation of, of idolaters, and he chose them for a nation to himself. And we'll see that. We'll see it throughout the Bible. You see it in the New Testament as well. So it's really important to, to grasp all of these truths as you read the rest of the, the scripture. But join with me at 
Verse 33 of chapter 49, it says, And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. That means he went home. He went home to be with the Lord, the promise there. Now, chapter 50 opens, and here's my first point in the first couple of verses, the grief of Joseph. So Joseph's going to grieve. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him, and he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the Egyptian physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for this embalming by the, the physicians. For such are the days required for those to embalm. And, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So there's no doubt that Joseph loved his, his dad. And, and his love, the, the love between Joseph and, and Jacob was greater, obviously. Remember, it was Jacob who gave Joseph a special coat. He really did love that boy because he was obedient. Can you imagine? I think his whole life, Joseph was just so tender and gentle and obedient, not only to God, but to his father. They had this special relationship. And now, after being reunited and, and living there for 17 years, he's been there in, in Egypt, Jacob. Jacob's life's changed too. Jacob's turned into a gentle, faithful man. And here's this, this just tender moment in the bedroom here as, as he weeps over his father and kisses him. And here's the application. I, just, I couldn't help but make this application tonight. But in our current society, death is really perceived differently than this picture that we've just been shown here. Um, and I know it firsthand because I stand beside the bedside of many people. I've, I've stood at the bedside of many people that have died in hospitals and at home. And I remember when my father died just a few years ago and how my wife and my mom and I, my sister, we were in the room and we could tell my dad was just done. You know, the hospice nurse was there as, as is normal. Very natural, very in the bedroom at home. Not in a hospital hooked up to cords and gadgets and breathing apparatuses. And it's, sometimes that's necessary, but it's so unnatural. What a blessing it is to be with your loved one when they pass. Uh, something that I think is really uh, important. I prefer to be at home, so I'm, I'm on the record now. for I just want to pull the cords, take me home. I'll say goodbye, and, and I might not have a staff to lean on like J. old Jacob, but... But I, I just want to go home and be with the Lord. But Jacob, he dies in bed at home, surrounded by his family. And his death is preceded by all the things he just said in chapter 49. All these commands he gave to his son and the clear orders. He told his sons, I do not want to be buried here in Goshen, in Egypt. I must be buried back at Milkpah. Back where my fathers are buried. I, I need to be gathered to my fathers. I need to be taken back there. And so that inference there at the end of chapter 49, he's going to be gathered back to his fathers. He's going to be buried with his grandfather Abraham and father uh, Isaac and, and the wives, their wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah that were all there. So after Jacob's last breath, verse 2, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So this process is interesting. I'll just take a moment. In ancient Egypt, this process is written by a guy named Herodotus. You can look him up 
and check him out. Herodotus wrote what's called the history of Herodotus around 400 years before Christ. And he, he, he writes all about Egyptian culture and very interesting writings, by the way. But he describes the Egyptian embalming. And they would take the body, these, they, he calls them physicians here in the scripture, but they would take the body and um, the embalmers would, would actually cut right down the middle of the body and they take out the entrails. I know it sounds gory, but they would wash them. Then they would, would take the rest of the body and, 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 just, and just cover it with the oil, smelling oils of cedar and cinnamon. And they would put all these different ointments on the body. And then they would take the body and put it in a salt solution for 40 days. And of course, the salt would dry the, you know, take all the fluids out of the body, obviously. And after 70 days, they would wrap the body in little pieces of linen and put it in a hard box, a sarcophagus. You've seen those, right? Egyptian sarcophagus. This is the procedure that they would use. And it's all confirmed right there in verse 3. But it's really interesting to note in that verse that it wasn't just Joseph and his brothers that were mourning. The Egyptians were mourning. And I really want to point that out. At the end of verse 3, the Egyptians mourned for him. So it wasn't just Jacob's family. It was the people that were there in Goshen that knew Jacob for 17 years. Remember, he was there 17 years. By the time he got back, he was an old man. Remember, Pharaoh looks at him and says, how old are you? He was 140, whatever. And, and now he's 17 years later, he's had an opportunity to live with those people. And those people, they've seen the grace of God. They've seen the kindness of Jacob. Radically different than what we read about chapter after chapter after chapter. This scheming, conniving, surplanter, lying, manipulator, Jacob. But for 17 years, he's just been a, a wonderful man. Everybody wants to spend time with old Jacob. And when he dies, the Egyptians were like, oh, Jacob, we're going to miss him. I, it's really important, I believe, to, uh, to see that. He's a godly man at this point in time, and he passes, and the Egyptians mourn. And then we have his burial, verse 14, which, by the way, is one of the more dramatic burials um, in the Bible because the entire family, the whole clan, all the brothers and their families, except for the little ones, are going to go in this massive entourage to pay tribute to this last patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Verse 4, and when the days of this morning were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in a grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Remember, it was purchased, and there's a grave there. There you shall bury me. And so Joseph says, Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I'll come back. So Joseph gets permission. This is quintessential Joseph. He's, he is, he's gracious. He's kind. He's faithful, and he gets permission from the Pharaoh to leave along with all the adult members of the clan, the family. And Pharaoh said, verse 6, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, all the elders of his house, 
and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Now, these aren't Jacob's sons. These are all these high officials in the Egyptian you know, hierarchy. So all these, this is a big entourage of people. You, can you imagine camels and donkeys and supplies are going to go from Egypt all the way up uh, to Hebron. So that's a long, long passage. And I probably should have showed you a picture on a map. It's a, a long distance that they're going to go. But all these people as well, verse 8, as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him chariots, and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. This is Moses writing this for us. So he says, it's a, this is a big entourage. It's a very, very great gathering. Now, I've been in some long funeral processions, or you may have been in a light out here, you know, on, on uh, Waterman and Baseline. You're right by Mountain View Cemetery. You might have wait and wait while the cops come up and their lights flashing, and you watch this entourage go by. Have you ever gotten stuck at one of those? But None of those compare to this. I mean, this is big. There's a lot of people involved in this entourage that's going to take this body, the body of Jacob, back up uh, to Canaan. Verse 7, again, all the Egyptians' various rank and officers went there, along with all of the adult family members. Verse 10, and they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there, with a great and solemn lamentation. So very respectful, they're having a service. They're remembering him as they first get to uh, the land of Canaan there. And when, verse 11, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, when they saw the morning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is serious, this is deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, they named the place Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan there. Now, now Abel Mitzrayim here, it means meadow of Egypt. So these Egyptians, all these Egyptian people, they get up there and, and they say, wow, this looks just like the meadows back home. When they cross the Jordan, they're in the Jordan River Valley there. They said, this, this looks similar to the meadow in Egypt and they give it that name, and then they, they look around, and they see the place there, and then they begin their, their mourning here. And the Canaanite people, they, they're shocked by this large group of people that just come into their land, these Egyptians, probably dressed in their formal, you know, official Egyptian uniforms and, and, uh, and with all their camels and all their food and, and supplies to get them there and back. I mean, it's a big, big group and a big deal. And so they probably, you know, built a fire, set up tents. And for this time and period, they have these, uh, this, this great time of, of mourning. Now, a, a, an interesting side note here is the route in which they take. If they were to go straight from Egypt toward Israel, if you look at a map, and darn, I wish I would have had one for you, but Egypt's kind of off-centered from the... Uh, Mediterranean Sea and Israel's offside. So if they would have gone straight up from, from Goshen, they would have kind of approached Israel from the western and they would have been going north, kind of up the coast. They would have been on that side of the Jordan, but they didn't take that route. They went on the other side of the Jordan and they kind of go west and then they go up through like Moab and then they went across 
into across the Jordan River. And, and many commentators, and I, I kind of think Moses wrote that down because that's kind of his route. He entered across the Jordan River. And it could be that that's, that's why. But I think that's interesting, that route that they had taken. Uh, and then this route, 400 years from now, is going to be taken. They're going to finally enter Canaan, the Israelites, the children of Israel, children of Jacob, after they've grown to the mighty tribes and, uh, and millions they're going to travel through, you know, the 40 years of wandering and finally go across the Jordan River from that same uh, place. Verse 12 says, His sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Melchpah. Before Mamre there, which Abraham brought with the bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite. Hittite, <laughs> Gee, sorry about that, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up to him to bury their father. So, this is just recorded, reporting to you and I that that Joseph did exactly, and his brothers did exactly what Jacob had asked them to do to take him up there to Canaan in Hebron and bury him with his fathers in that cave there at Machpelah or Melpah. And by the way, this word, this Machpelah, can be translated double cave, which really makes sense because um, these ancient people, they, they were very segregated in terms of uh, male-female. So more than likely there would have been the men on one side in this one cave and in this other cave there would have been the, the women buried there, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah on one side with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the other side. The only difference would be the sarcophagus, the Egyptian burial sarcophagus in a, a body that's preserved. Now Hebron, Hebron, if you've ever been to Israel, is, it's in the West Bank. And it's controlled today by the Palestinians. And years and years ago, you know, there's been all kinds of, of war over the centuries. And there's been a lot of change of hands. And the, uh, um, the Muslims have built this sanctuary over that grave site because it's holy to them as well. They believe in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as Jews do and Christians and so they have a holy site, and they haven't allowed Jews to go to that site. Jews can go up to a certain place to that site and put, they, Jews always in prayer, they write stuff down and they shove it in the cracks of the crevices, you know, at the Western Wall, they do it, they did it here at the same location. But uh, there was a guy back in the 80s that actually found and was able to go down in and record what he saw down in these, this double cave area. Uh, obviously, there's no body, there's no sarcophagus at this point in time. It had been robbed years before, but he believed that he got into this cave, and today it's the sanctuary of Abraham. It's uh, controlled by the, the Muslims uh, there in the, on the West Bank in, in the city of Hebron. But the important takeaway for us is all this, that the, the patriarchs had in their minds this vision and this truth that God said, I'm going to make you a wonderful nation. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have lots of offspring, and you're going to get this land. And with that promise of land came this desire for Abraham to be buried in that land, even though Abraham wasn't from Canaan, remember? 
Where was Abraham from? He was from way south in Ur, the Chaldees. And he had finally, finally made it, you know, the whole story of Abraham. And so they all want to be buried there. And that's why Jacob wants to be buried there as well with his fathers in this, this cave there at Milkpah, which was purchased by Abraham. But God promised that land to them and their family, so they want to be buried there. So Israel's sons, they've now completed their mission, their calling in their life, and they return to the threshing floor at Atad to rejoin the Egyptians. We, it's believed that the Egyptians stayed there as they crossed the Jordan at that threshing floor of Atad. And then the private you know, family, just the family members, went on to the tomb and did their thing as a family while the Egyptians kind of stayed behind. So they go back to the threshing floor of Atad and they're going to gather together with the Egyptians and they're all going to go home. But as they return... Instead of grief over Jacob's death, these brothers now give this idea, boing, you know, uh uh-oh, dad's gone. What is Joseph going to do to us? We're guilty. We we were bad. We we mistreated him. We've done all these bad things to him. What's he going to do to us now that dad's dead? So... I've entitled this little section here from 15 to verse 21, the guilt of Jacob's sons. Notice in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, obviously to themselves, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. See, the guilt comes on them now. Now, whether they talked to their dad about it or they talked among themselves, we don't know. Maybe before he died, they, Joseph was gone, and they came in and said, Dad, Dad, you've got you to plead for us. When you die, maybe Joseph's going to come after us, and I'm sure Jacob's sons, you don't have to worry about that. I could just see old Jacob, oh, don't worry, Joseph isn't that good. He's not like you. He's nothing like you. I can just see that playing out. Perhaps Joseph will hate us, verse 15, and he'll repay us for all that we did to him, verse 16. So, They sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying. So this would indicate that maybe they talked to him. Whether they did or didn't, we don't know. And it might have been wise for them to even say that. But Joseph, Joseph, you can trust Joseph. Thus you shall say to Joseph. They they said, we talked to dad and this is what he said. I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. For they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespasses of your servants, of the God of your father. And notice what Joseph does. Do you see that there? And Joseph began to weep. Isn't that interesting? Instead of saying, you guys are scoundrels. You know, you're, you're just trying to manipulate me. He was like, this is how sensitive Joseph is. He's like, what do you, what do you guys think of me? Dad died. I mean, go. And he just breaks down and he begins to weep that his brothers would, you know, think that he had one ounce of evil toward them. It broke his heart, really. That's what he's saying. But ever since the brothers of Joseph realized who he was, remember, they didn't know. They met him several times, but they didn't know it was his brother. He was just the prime minister of Egypt to them. But from the time they realized that their brother was the prime minister, after meeting up with him, After all those years of separation, they thought he was dead. They didn't know what happened to him. They sold him to the the slave uh, uh, dealers that went down to Egypt. 
I believe this whole time that God is working in their lives and he's plaguing them and he's, that guilt. I mean, have you ever done something that you just felt guilty about and you gotta get it off your chest and you just have to tell the truth? Some people, it's really interesting. I've talked to people throughout the years, Christians. Some are, you know, they can handle a little white lies, no big deal. And others are just so sensitive to, you know, it's like, They'll come to you and they'll say, I'm really sorry. I forgot to say hi to you Sunday. I'm so sorry. Ah." You know, it's like, oh, hey, hey, it's okay. It's okay. We didn't shake hands. Hey, it's really okay. You know, some people are so sensitive. But in this case, these brothers are guilty. And I believe the Holy Spirit's working in their lives. I I believe God is, you know, working because he's chosen them. And, And they're worried because they think that their brother is plotting some kind of revenge against him that, that maybe Joseph will be vindictive or, or he'll, some kind of bitter, resentful feelings are going to come out. And now that their dad's gone, that they have something to worry about, their guilt and their fear was motivating them to grovel and beg, you know, around their brother. It's, and, and, and Joseph just starts to weep over that again. I love the fact that he does that. It just shows you how sensitive he is, how godly he is. And guys, it's, there's nothing wrong with crying. I know that women are more sensitive to those kind of things, but to shed a tear, you know, is, is not unmasculine at all. And so he, he cries because his brothers, you know, act that way. And in verse 16, it says, so they sent messengers to Joseph. Now, when I read that, I thought they wouldn't have sent you know, an Egyptian. They, they weren't on the same terms with them. They wouldn't even eat together with Egyptians, remember? So they must have sent one of their own. Who do you think it might have been? I'm guessing it was Benjamin. Benjamin was Joseph's favorite brother. They all know that. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? So they send Benjamin to him with this information. And then Joseph hears that. Here's from Benjamin, and and he weeps. He begins to cry. And I think that behind the, the tent doors or whatever, the brothers are listening and looking and waiting to see what the response is, to see if they had to hightail it out of there. Because they think that their brother's going to come after them. And notice what it says in verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, behold, we are your servants. So they see that Joseph is, he's good, (laughs) he's not going to kill us. And he's weeping, he's broken, it's a moment of sensitivity. So they run to him and what do they do? You remember the dream that Joseph had 50 or so years before this? That his brothers would bow down to him. And here they're doing it once again. God confirming in the, in the life of this man, Joseph. He's this great, impeccable character, honesty and integrity. A great man to study, a great man to look at for those qualities Joseph, verse 19, said to them, do not be afraid for I, he said, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not in a place to judge you. I don't judge you. I've never judged you. This is a beautiful statement here. He's saying that vengeance is not mine, but vengeance belongs to God. That's a very, very godly thing to say. I mean, We want to take vengeance immediately when we're offended, right? But it's a godly thing to let God do it, to let God repay. We're to be peacemakers. Christians are really to be peacemakers. And to let God have that. In fact, in Romans 12, although 
Obviously, this text wasn't there for Joseph. He's enacting this text. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's the Lord then. Joseph is so godly, and he's been in God's will this whole time. He knows that God has a purpose and a plan for everything in his life. And he trusts the Lord. This really does speak to, and it, it, it just blows off the page when I was reading, of the providence of God, the sovereign work of God and his plan. And Joseph all along has put himself just, God, I'm not going to look to the left. or I'm just going to do whatever you want. So God, I'm in a prison now. Okay, God, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to get me out of here? God, I'm in a hole in the earth. What's, what's that? What's going to happen? I know you're, you've got a plan, God. No lamenting, no sorrow, no anger at God. God, why did you do this to me? God, what's your plan? You've got something, you're going to do something awesome, God. Joseph is this man of faith, and we see this over and over in his life. Providence. Providence is, is not luck. Providence is not karma. We, we like to throw that around, karma. He got karma. You, you watch the news and they use that, right? They like to use that. And, and even Christians, I hear this. You shouldn't say it. Really, you shouldn't say it. There's no luck for us as believers, is there? Is there really luck? Do you, do you believe that? Somebody's going to run out of here with their little <laughs> rabbit's foot in their pocket. They're going to, I'm going to reach to shake your hand. Don't show me rabbit's foot tonight. <laughs> It's, but it's lucky. There's not luck. For the Christian, it's the providence of God. For faithful men and women of God, we're trusting God for his plan, and we're walking with him. We're trusting in him. With each step, with each word, God has a plan. But they've mistreated me. When we look at Jesus. How do they mistreat Jesus? But not a word. He said not a word, the Bible says, Jesus did. He was reviled, but he reviled not again, the scripture says. We need to understand that. We need to live by that. Joseph, again, becomes this great example of that. But providence, it means that God sees and he orders. And he's ordained the end. He has, he has a purpose and a plan for the end. Why am I working in this meaningless, no, go-nowhere job right now? Why am I doing this? Because God has a purpose. And you could try and you could knock on doors and you can make phone calls and you could take everyone's advice on Facebook to get a job. As a believer, if you really trust in the Lord, that all that advice could come to you. There's nothing wrong with that. But God is the one that opens the door. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you live that way? That's the thing. We believe that, but do we live by God's providence? I believe God is actively involved in moving everything around me. I do not believe that God is in heaven aloof and he doesn't care what goes on and he's up there reading the paper. That he doesn't really, he's not involved in the interactions of man. That is, there's nothing further from the truth in terms of the scriptures. That God has desires to have a personal relationship with you, that he wants to lead and guide you, some of you through some great sorrow or flood. Some of you over a high mountain with victory. But every one of us, through the blood of Jesus, and whatever it takes for his purpose, for his glory, for his plan, that's providence, not luck, and it's not karma. And we need to live that way as God's children. So Joseph here, in these verses, 15 through 21, we, we see God's providence, and Joseph tells his brothers, 
really that God is guiding the circumstances of his life. He looks back at, at all the events that have happened in his life, and he believes that God was working. It was God's perfect plan that he was kidnapped by his brothers. It was God's plan that he was sold into slavery because if he wasn't sold into slavery, he wouldn't have ended up in Egypt. And if he wasn't in Egypt, he wouldn't have gone into Potiphar's house. And if he wasn't in Potiphar's house, he wouldn't have been accosted by Pot Mrs. Potiphar, thrown into prison, and met who? The butler and the baker. If he didn't meet the butler and the baker, he wouldn't have been able to prophesy for the Pharaoh who put him in charge of the land. And by that, he was able to save the world, but more importantly, save his family, which the seed, the seed, the seed, the promised seed, and the Messiah would come through the seed of Judah. Do you see? Again, nobody could write this. You might think you're a gifted writer, but you, you, you can't write that kind of stuff. And so here we have this wonderful truth here in God's providence. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about God's providence today, especially when you have a hurricane. And there are people that think, you know, what? Did God do this? Is, is, did God have anything to do with it? Or, or why couldn't God stop it or do anything about it? I think there's, there's misconceptions about God and because it's really wrong to say that God had nothing to do with it. It's wrong. God has everything to do with everything in the universe. Wouldn't you agree? So God had something to do with it. It's equally as wrong to say that God couldn't do anything about it. Because God can, he's got all power, right? He could have done anything he wanted to do. There's no comfort in believing in a powerless God. And, and so you and I need to understand that, that, that God has a purpose and a plan for everything, even calamity, even the things that are happening even in our country today. To say God couldn't do anything about it makes God weak. And of course, he could have done something about it, and God is never powerless. Less. So the question is, why does God allow personal suffering? Why does God allow catastrophe like the one we've just witnessed here? And it's here in verse 20 that we get the answer. This is really important. Here's truth about God's providence, my point. Look at verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers that were at one time worried about him killing them. He says, but for, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God... He allowed all of this stuff to happen in my life, and he meant it for good. And notice what he says. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Wow. This is a real heavy truth, but it's easy to understand. The truth about Christian suffering, the truth about calamity. God meant it for what? For good. God has a purpose God has a plan for everything that happens. Every Christian should be able to see, as you look back, and I, I would just challenge you right now as I'm teaching, look back in your life. That horrible accident, the loss of the job, the anguish when you didn't have enough money to pay the bill, whatever it is in your life, you look back at your life, God had a purpose for that. And God's made you stronger, and God has used you and spoken to you, and other people, your kids, maybe watching you respond to that. It's grown them in faith. God has used every element, all of these things that are happening for good. God can use anything for his good. 
And although this man, Joseph, he did not have Romans 8.28 in his, his uh, arsenal to read like we do. Here it is, Romans 8.28. You know this verse. All things work together. Notice, all things. This is the providence of God. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a plan. Oh, Pastor Lee, but I'm in it. I'm in it right now. This is really hard. I, I'm in it. It's, this is difficult. All things work together for good. God has a purpose. If God could allow his chosen to be thrown in a pit, put in a prison, to suffer all that he, for his glory, to save the world, can any of us say, God, was that really a smart thing to do? I mean, who, who am I to even question God? But God has shown his providence, and he shows it again and again. Joseph, I mean, we've been studying this book, this book of Genesis for 21 months now. We've seen Noah. He was told by God that it was going to rain. It had never rained before. So he starts building on this project year or month after month, year after year. People were saying, what are you, crazy? This guy's gone off his rocker. He's mental. They chastised him. What God? Why would God do this? You know, and over and over. But Noah, Noah took years to build the ark with no evidence of flood or rain, but he trusted God. And then there was Abram. He was told by God, him and Sarah, that they were going to have a child. Remember? Year after year. Finally, we're, I'm 90 and you're 100. This isn't going to work. We got to find, we got to work this out for you. Remember how that was a bad plan? They, they had to believe, they had to trust and believe that God would work it all out. In the end, 14 years that Jacob worked so he could be married to Rachel. He had to wait. He had to go through it. But, but, but I'm 21. I want to have a job and get married and have my life. I have a baby next month. I want that. Well, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with wanting all those things, but, but God has to bring you through different things. And maybe... You won't get married till you're 30 or till you're 40. I don't know. I don't. Maybe that prime job won't come until later in life. So brother in our church right now, as a retired man, he's finally been able to go back to college and working on his PhD. Just something he's always wanted to do. <laughs> you have to wait. It, couldn't, it wouldn't happen when you're 25. He had to wait until his later in his lifetime. And, and we have to wait and believe that God has all of these things ordered for his, for our good and for his glory. God's providence. Every one of these people we've read about in this study, they, they wondered at one time or another, did God forget about me? What about me, God? You're blessing them and you're blessing that ministry and you're blessing that family and you're blessing that business. But what about me, God? We need to be very, very careful Christians and not lose sight of the fact that God has a plan, that God is in control, that we just need to trust him and just rest in him and leave the best for him. He has a plan for our lives. He wants to, to get the greatest amount of glory from his servants. And Joseph has been a great example for us, hasn't he? He's the one that we need to emulate, to be like Joseph. And as we're faithful like Joseph, God blesses and blesses and blesses and uses and uses his life. But he had to go through some really, really difficult things. 
I believe that right now God is working providentially in every one of your lives, just like he is in mine. He has a purpose for your life, that there are no accidents. God knows what's going to happen to you tonight. He knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow. For every believer here in this room, there are no accidents. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. God's not rolling dice saying, oh, I'm going to pick on him today. God has a plan. And before, here's the mind blower, before the foundations of the earth, he knew you and he saved you. All you did was respond to him. Without which, you aren't saved. You have to respond. You have to believe. Well, wait a minute, how does that work? If he chose me, I don't know how it works. You can figure that out. I, I've never been able to figure it out. I just know that you have to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's all I know. That's what the Bible teaches. And so God providentially is working all the time. God allows evil. God allows pain. God allows natural disaster. He allows all of those things because he's working providentially for his glory, for your good. I, I do know that. So it doesn't matter what you're going through. You just need to really, really trust him. And, and here's the important truth. Ultimately, our lives aren't in the hands of the people around us that, that control our schedule or our finances, but our, hand, our lives are in the hands of God. And he overrules. He overrides all things for your good and for his glory. You have to remember that, Christian, no matter what age you are. It's a truth that we see all the time. I, I read an illustration about a pastor. He loved to minister. He loved to go to suffering people and encourage them, people that were discouraged. And he, he carried this old crocheted bookmark in his Bible. And he would take that out because on one side of it was a kludge of knots and, and thread. But on the other side, as you turn it over, it was beautifully crocheted. It said, God is love. And he would take that and he would tell people that we're going through difficult things. He said, this is all you see right now. It's the, the, the gnarls, the knots, the loose ends. But, but on the other side, God's working a masterpiece. And you turn it over and it's perfect. On this side of heaven, we don't see that. But on the other side, we're going to see it. We're going to see it all. We're going to look at it and say, oh, God, thank you that I didn't get married at that age or at that. Thank you that I didn't get that job that I prayed for. Thank you that I had that cancer, Lord. You spared me from some other things. You, you have my life and my best interest at heart. You have a purpose and a plan for everything. As I've already said, think about this. If Joseph's brothers hadn't sold him to the Midianites, then Joseph would not have went to Egypt, worked for Potiphar, Potiphar's wife would not have falsely accused him of rape and, and he wouldn't have gone into prison and met the baker and the butler, wouldn't have interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, become the prime minister and famine would have killed hundreds of thousands of people. Think about it. All of this was God's plan. Oh, and one other thing. Judah... And the seed, the Messiah, would have been snuffed out. God had a plan. 
God had a purpose and he, he worked through the lives and through the prime minister and through another government to bring about his purpose so that the Messiah would come. And Jesus came. And hallelujah for that. Because we have salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And this is his plan. We see it working as we, we've studied this book. And I love so much the study of Joseph, this man of integrity, of forgiveness. And then notice in verse 21, how Joseph speaks to his brothers. They're fearful, and then they bow before him. Verse 21, and therefore, Joseph says, don't, don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for you and your little ones here in the land. I, I own it all. I'm, I'm the prime minister. I'm going to, don't be afraid. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph Shows his brother's grace and love, again, through provision. And then finally, we have his death recorded here by Moses, verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children, remember his children, to the third generation. So he was a great-great-grandpa. And the children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up, and notice it says, on Joseph's knees. So can you imagine the impact this guy has on his grandkids? He's teaching them and talking to them about God and God's faithfulness. Oh, I was thrown in a pit, and he's got dirt, and he's throwing the dirt in his baby's face and, or his kid's face, you know, and just illustrating. I love to do that with my kids. <laughs> Look what God did and make it really fun for them. And, and, I, and God is so faithful. Oh, I love God. And the faith that he instilled in his family, I, I think that's what the, he's saying there. He brought him up on Joseph's knees. So after 50 years, he buried his dad, and he lived for 50 more years, and, and he, he saw the fruit of his family, and, and the family grew. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land. So he's prophesying now over the, the brothers, to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. Remember, he's in, in the Egyptian culture, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, the end of an era this magnificent book here. 400 years in the future, Moses is going to get his bones. He's going to get Joseph's bones, and he's going to bring them back to Canaan. And his bones are going to be buried, just as it's prophesied here, uh, back in the promised land. But again, this book begins with the garden and perfection, and it ends with two coffins and death, because through men came the sin, nature, and death. Remember, through sin comes death, and we saw that illustrated so clearly. But although this is the end of the book, it's not the end of the story. Let me just show you really quick. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, just really quick. Because it's here that we get the story of after 400 years, this is the story about how God's going to move the children of Israel. Now you know who they are, the 12 tribes, the children of Israel. They're going to leave Egypt. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came out of Egypt, or came to Egypt. Exodus one verse one. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 
All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. That's Goshen in Egypt. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war. They'll come against us. That's what he's saying. That they join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So we're going to treat them real harsh. So this is the beginning of the Exodus, and you know that story. But what a grand, grand story we're in. Next week, I'm going to go back to Genesis 1 real quick. And then we'll pick up Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 in, in two weeks. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful history that we've read, this, this real-life story of these real people. As we've uh, studied your word uh, over the past year and, and more, 21 months, we thank you, God, for the many truths that you've shown us. We thank you for your word that's faithful and true. We thank you, Lord, for just our gathering on Wednesday night, the fellowship that we have, all under the banner of, of our love for Jesus Christ and the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would multiply us, that we would tell others about this story, that we would tell others about Jesus Christ, the seed the seed of the woman that crushed the serpent. That through Jesus, there's salvation and forgiveness of sin. And I, I just pray we as a church would share that story individually and corporately. And Lord, that you would have your way with our, our fellowship. Lead us, Lord, as we move into another book. Guide us as church families. Teach us all these wonderful truths, Lord, that, that you've revealed. Help us to live as people that love God and honor God faithfully. Help us to, to be men and women that have integrity like Joseph. And we'll give you thanks and praise. In Jesus, amen. Mm -hmm.